0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Artificial intelligence is the hot topic on everybody's lips. In the week that marks a year since OpenAI released ChatGPT, we're welcoming on another pioneer of AI that of Alex Lebrun. Alex Lebrun has been involved with AI for 20 years, ultimately selling one of his early companies to Facebook. He talks to us in this episode about what it was like selling to Facebook and working with Mark Zuckerberg and tells us about how his new startup will be able to impact the future of physical health. He also talks about the cultural differences between building a startup in Paris, London, in San Francisco. Thanks to Spencer at First Minute Capital for making the introduction for this episode. Alex, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thanks, Jimmy, for inviting me. So you've been working in AI legitimately for 20 years and have built a number of businesses in it. You were involved in the very first chatbots 20 years ago. Can you tell me how that happened?
0: Uh, yeah, sure. So I I was browsing on, uh, like the underground internet a uh, very late night in summer in my home uh, 20 years ago, and I I met a woman there. Uh, her name was Sibel, very charming woman, and she was actually a chatbot. I knew I knew she was a chatbot from the beginning. Uh, it was a very early chatbot on this website, and I really fell in love a little bit with her, but uh, especially with the technology. And I thought, wow, it's so cool to try to build a machine should try to understand you, answer your questions, have a conversation with you. Uh, I was really fascinated by the, the tech behind this very early chatbot. Um, and so I decided to, okay, I, I want to start my company and I want to build chatbots and spend my life on, on this. <laughs> um, this is how we started uh, my, my first um, startup called Virtuos. We had to, we, we had to find somebody who was ready to pay for this. So we chose mm-hmm. a customer side chatbots to, uh, to large companies. What scale did you grow that company to? So, um, so we started very, with a very small company in Paris, in France. Um, it was in 2002. So it was already like a, a winter, AI winter, one of the many AI winters, very hard to, to get funded. So we started bootstrapping the company, starting very slow. Um But but we we got first customers after three years. Moved to the US when we raised money uh, with VC's in California, and I ended up selling the company to um, Nuance Communications ten years later. Uh, at this point, we were about seventy employees, and we had uh, pretty big customers in the US. So uh, we had a good product, good good revenues. Uh, but it was a ten-year uh, cycle, and. What were the biggest mistakes
1: you made in that first entrepreneurial journey when it came to hiring, do you think?
0: I made so many mistakes. You need a 10-hour... Yeah, which one to choose first? We no, Hiring is definitely uh, um, one of the hardest things, not only for your first company, for even now, if I'm startup number three, I'm, I'm still doing many mistakes. Uh, one of the first we did, is because our company was so small, so nobody knows about us. If some engineer wants to work sh- with us, we are so impressed that like us that we will forget to evaluate them. Or so we set the bar very low, just because people are enthusiastic about our company was enough for us to hire them. Yeah, uh, because again, when you are uh, all my friends who are in finance and consulting, very famous companies, you feel you are you know doing your small thing in your corner and. You feel so happy that somebody cares about you. Uh, so we we set the bar too low. Um and uh, I think the bar should really be very, very, very high. And it's okay if you're a bit higher, it's better than hiring like middle level people because then then the level will go down and down and down. You know, it's famous, it's very hard to increase the level of the team. It 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 mostly goes down. Uh so this is something we should have been more um Cautious, uh, and then when we moved to the US, we made a new series of mistakes uh, because we hired the sales team, marketing team, and it did these people very, very slick, very professional at interviewing. Impossible, impossible for us. We are engineers. We come from France to 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 go through the Polish uh, and understand what was really. Uh, and so we, I hired a, a full suit of c suit executive. When I arrived in, in California after funding, getting funded. And after a year, I fired everyone. I, I really started from scratch, uh, because right. every single one was a sailor. Gosh. I and mean, so what did you take into your second startup then? And um, so we, we were, um, second startup, we started in, in, uh, uh, in San Francisco, uh, uh, with good funding from day one. which so was a completely different uh, environment, a different story. We hired very, very slowly, actually only engineers. Uh, And when we sold this company to Facebook, we were only uh, uh, 14 people, 14 engineers, Mm -hmm. and we had no, and it was a very, very dense team. And I was by then so tired of managing people from my first company that I didn't want to hire any, anyone, but simple engineers were simple to manage. Uh, So it was a different kind of team. And how?
1: Talk to us about that process of being acquired by Facebook. How does something like
0: that start out? And so at this point, we were in Silicon Valley. We were very famous on Hacker News. So we were visible and we received acquisitions offers every month from yeah. almost all the, the companies you may think about, you know, Apple, Google, Amazon. And so we we really didn't meet anyone in a tensor, you know it's, it's it's a mistake young startups do to say okay we just meet them to see how much they are ready to pay because I'm curious but it's a big mistake to do that because it send uh, signals that you are for sale mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and then you don't take it they won't give you an offer anyway but then you start to think about exiting telling your friends wow I sold my company and it's very hard to get back to work so it's uh, one of the advice we give at Y, y Combinator never ever talk to M&A uh, yeah. Unless you're really ready to to sell your company. Uh, and so I, I she's, if yeah. entrepreneurs listen to us, you know, don't talk to M&A. Uh, you should only answer when the, when the message is coming from executives, people who actually want to buy your company for their, pers- for their goal, not to the M&A team. And the, the job of the M&A team is just to put every company on the radar. So they know mm-hmm. once you are this, this spread enough, they can like sharks, you know, come and get you for a uh, price per engineer for a low price. So it's really, it's re- there is absolutely no good reason to talk to the m team. And sorry for the m teams who are listening, but I know this <laughs> is a part. Um, and so we, we we got pinged by many, many, but we um, never talked to anyone. And then suddenly uh, um, we actually received messages from, from Facebook, first, first from David Marcus, who was uh, the lead of Facebook Messenger, uh, reporting to Mark Zuckerberg, and then later I uh, even received uh, di- direct messages from uh, the, from Mark, from Zuck. Uh, and so this is a signal you're working for. You know that at this point you are not just a uh, uh, small detail for them, but you are important, and this is uh, the, the, when we started to talk to Facebook. Um That is really interesting on all those things because
1: you can inevitably get, you yeah, know, it's just flattering, isn't it, to be approached by people wanting to have a chat at at any level, frankly, but particularly by a big company that you might want to be acquired by at some day. But yeah, it, a bit like the footballer getting their head turned, isn't it? It's uh, it's a really good, um, it's really interesting. And so you've clearly got a very set mind in that. How do you then say, okay, well, actually to David Marcus, for example, we, we will have a chat. How do you just start that sort of sales process? Because I, I just think this is so interesting, Alex, because so many startups. Have the idea of being acquired by one of the, uh, you know, the, um, I was going to call them the the GAFA companies then, but the, the sort of Silicon Valley titans as something that they want to do. But obviously very few get close to it and even less. It ends up actually happening too.
0: So it always starts like, like an informal chat. Uh, at first, I think we had coffee first, you know, we talk about things and then they want to meet you again and, Introduce somebody else in the in the conversation, then invite you on the campus. Uh, So it's really like it's exactly like dating, actually. You have this first date, and (laughs) what I'm saying before is do it with the executive, not never with a sponsor. You know, with with a person who has enough power to make the decision to to buy you. And um, and then after the first date and second date, third date, and so on, and then you go, you know, for a date trip together or spend a weekend. So it's really the same. progressive uh build up of the relationship. Um it's very intense because it maybe the next every day there is something. Uh at some point they will invite uh, engineers or technical people in discussions. And it's it's almost the, the, the word acquisition is never said. It's more like, oh, we made partner on something, you know, everybody pretends they don't know why we are talking. So I know I talks no, about no. marriage too early in dating, right? <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> exactly. So, And both sides, I think both sides are afraid of paying the world. But <laughs> it's it's clearly, uh, uh, and you get more, you know, after a while, you know, they are, what they are thinking about. And so uh, one day, uh, I don't remember, but they will invite you for half have, have a drink. You know, I think I had a glass of wine at David's house and then this is a w- proposal. He clearly knew
1: how to go after a Frenchman. Um, I a glass of one. But, and so tell us about, so you're acquired by Facebook and then you go and work at Facebook for a while and this is 2014 or so and you're kind of... 2015. 2015. You're working kind of in the, um, the Facebook AI team when a lot was being sunk into it. What was that process like going from a, a startup to, you know, sort of a mothership effectively.
0: So, so Facebook is a, is a, uh, incredibly, incredible company for that. They manage acquisition really well. And so they didn't try to break my team. We were actually one team inside Facebook. We still had our logo. Uh, we were together. I was head of the team. So both on the product and engineering side, which normally are two different people at Facebook. Mm. Uh, and we got—it's—it's it's almost like we continue to do what we were doing uh, within Facebook. And I thought it was very smart for them not to force an integration. You know, split the team, or they would have lost everything they bought uh, if they break things like this. So we, at least for a year, uh, we almost continued to operate like before, but with virtually unlimited resources. And I, I could get rid of all the things I disliked, like managing finance and hiring pipeline, or all these things are taken care of by Facebook. But for when it comes to build the product and taking decisions, we are still very, very autonomous. I thought it was a very, um, a very good thing. To give you an example, uh, we were running our platform on AWS Using a stack, a tech stack on Clojure. It's a, it's a language, very good language on top of the JVM. Completely, you could, you couldn't be further away from the Facebook tech stack based on PHP and and so on. And I thought, okay, we'll, we'll have to migrate all our stack to Facebook stack. Yeah. So we spent six months doing that. It's typically acquired companies do that. And to my surprise, I never asked that to just, you know, we'll see there. You, you, you will decide. And so we, we, so we say, great, we, let's keep our stack. We are hosted in Facebook uh, data center on our own servers. Um, but the rule was if it breaks during the night, because it's your stack, you have to get up and fix things. <laughs> and because it's not, it's not the Facebook ops, devops team can only manage Facebook stack. Yeah. I, I mean, they can, they can restart your server, but they cannot go inside. There, there is an issue. And so we said, okay, great, but we won't migrate anything. But as traffic went higher and higher because, uh, yeah, we grew. And so we started to have some issues in the middle of the night. We have to, 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 and so after a while, we, we just transferred our database from our stack to Facebook so that we don't have to manage it anymore. Then one month later, something else started to break and we had to, to, to put these things from our stack to Facebook stack. And actually we made this decision very, Pragmatically, uh, and we made them ourselves. Uh, but nobody at Facebook ever told me that I should migrate with this uh, skill Or so it was. I, I thought again a very smart way to manage uh, integrating a new company. Yeah, that's really interesting. And then what was the the time
1: like that you were there? Because you you came up with a number of you know quite significant projects that you wanted to implement.
0: Yeah. So we, um, I, I had, um, I was dreaming for a while to uh, train an AI. That learns uh, by observing humans, and we are in 2015, where uh, you know end-to-end machine learning was not l- normal, uh, where you tended to to build a bundle by hand uh, with very structured data only. It was long before LLMs and, and and these things where we train on text, and so the idea back then to train by observing humans doing something was. Not, I mean, many people had this idea, but financial capacity to execute that by having many, many, many humans actually uh, work and annotate what they do to train a model. Uh, no, no, I mean, nobody in the world had, had enough resources and the idea to do that. And so when we joined Facebook, we, we had this idea and we had Facebook resources, so we could finally do this project uh, that we called uh, Facebook M. So it was a research project, uh, where we, we built a concierge service where the service is, is actually offered by a combination of human concierge and, and an AI that learns by observing them and, and progressively does more and more of the tasks. So I, we were able to start this project, uh, when we arrived at, uh, at Facebook. Um, and then you
1: went with a plan. I've heard you talk about this story before, but you went with a plan to Mark Zuckerberg to hire 200 people, which is a pretty bold uh, plan, one would say. But how did that meeting go?
0: Yeah, so so this project was never in Facebook's plan. So we arrive and say, let's do that. And say, yeah, why not? But I need to hire 200 people, 200 concierge, actually, to annotate data. And I, I need to put 200 concierge in a building in Mendel Park. Um So it's a big budget, so... Uh, so I had to present this uh, demand to um, to Mark, and so the way it works, you, you take a meeting. You have to send your twenty hour before you send, to send a memo with what you're asking for. Slides are forbidden; you know, it needs to be text. Mm-hmm. And uh, I prepared everything. You know, every objection, every possible objection from technical objection: it won't work, or financial, or why to bad business idea. I was ready to answer anything when I arrived at this meeting. And and first thing he tells me is, Alex, I read the memo. I, I know the context. I got everything. Okay. My only question is, I'm very excited. I think it will work. And I think we will steal all Google's business if, by doing that because people will talk to our concierge like, like Chuck G.B.T. would do today yeah. instead of searching in Google. And he made a, he made like a back of the envelope <laughs> check." Uh, and, and, and to be okay, so we should hire actually 10,000 uh, people uh, to actually write and steal Google's business. It will be, and look, I, I, I did the financial here. It will work. And I was so frightened because, of course, there are many things in the project where I didn't know. I, I am optimistic, but I was not sure it would work. And so I was terrified by the idea to, uh, to hire 10,000 people only to realize my model has a flow and it won't work. And so I had to say, no, no, actually, Mark, I'm not sure it will work. You know, this part is very weak. This this is an unknown here. We have a a big uh, unknown at this point. So I had to, I gave all my arguments that I prepared the day before, but uh, reversed just to say it won't work. And to this day, day, I don't know if if it was deliberate strategy from, from him to learn, he learned more about the, actual project the inner working of the project by with this contrarian question uh, or it was just uh, he, he was truly enthusiastic enough to 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 be willing hire ten thousand people, but it was a very surprising first interaction uh post post acquisition with him yeah. and, and for for the story he got after forty minutes he said okay let let's do that two two hundred okay and the CFO was sitting uh, on a table somewhere else in the room and he he made a gesture and and the neck there was I had the green light to hire and we started to hire these people. So this ability at Facebook, at least back then, to to take big decisions, execute very quickly was was like a paradise for for builders uh, like us. It's very interesting
1: the wanting the memo in written text 24 hours beforehand because that is exactly how at Downing Street operates actually. You, you sort of, you submit via text the night before because it's the most like efficient way, right? Because if you actually have a meeting to discuss and whatever, it just ends up taking, but the most efficient way is write it down, you know, on pieces of paper, try and make it as brief as you possibly can. And then you sort of, you kind of get a decision back. And it's often you're asking the Prime Minister, Prime Minister, are you content with these decisions? And then the not happy. Not do you accept? Are you content? It always stuck with me. It's really interesting. And and how did you how did you go and then hire two hundred people? Like how, how how does that work? How do you go about that process?
0: Oh, so this is where um, the company had a very good execution. You know, the HR department had the ability to to source these people quickly, interview them. We found some place in Menlo Park. There was an old WhatsApp building. Um, that was still, uh, uh, we still had a lease on it. So we found the, uh, and then the, um, yeah, the execution in, in a few weeks was, was flawless. And this is where, uh, um, alone as a startup, we would never have been capable to do this so quickly. But Facebook had uh, the execution power to make this, this thing happen in a few. And then
1: you tell us about how you then go off and do your next startup. So you're in this great place, you're hiring all these great people, completely different set of circumstances, but you decide once again it's time to get down into the arena.
0: Um, Yeah, so after almost four years at Facebook, uh, so so after after, actually after two years, um, I, I changed team and I moved to Facebook AI Research. I was working a lot with Facebook AI Research because they were providing me with the models that I was putting into practice with M. And and this team around Jan LeCun who was my, uh, you know, for me, uh, the god on earth. <laughs> I, I had been reading Jan's papers for 10 years, um, but never met him, and he became my boss. So it was a, like a, a dream come true. And so I, I changed him to work with Jan, and I was sent to Paris, back to Paris after eight years in, in California to start the AI lab in Paris, the research lab. So as you know, Google bought uh, DeepMind in London. And after that, Facebook had to react to, to capture the talent in Europe and it started the lab, the research lab in Paris. So I moved back to Paris to help uh, build this, uh, this team over there. Um and so after four, four great years, I, uh, my entrepreneur side uh, started to, uh, to move and I, I wanted to start again uh, by applying things we had been working on at Facebook, which were, you know, mostly open source uh, public research, so uh, I applied this to an actual problem uh, uh, in the world. So we were for, for a few weeks, we contemplated doing uh, either something in transportation or in health. So we, we wanted to choose something like a big problem that uh ambitious problem. It was my third startup and maybe the last one, so I didn't want to choose like, like a customer service chatbot again. <laughs> um and uh, so we chose to try to work in health. So we started to uh, interview many, many uh, doctors. I spent time in hospitals. Uh, in I, I attended many consultations with actual physicians and patients. And we started to think, okay, how? what problem should we pick in healthcare that we have a, a, a new chance to solve with a new superpowers powers brought by AI? So we, yeah, in 2018, 20, early 2019, I, I, did this work with, um, a few people, a few engineers of my team who were willing to live with me and, and start Nabla. Um, and we, so we left Facebook with,
1: um, at And so to, to talk to us about Nabla, cause that's the, the main event
0: and what it is that it does. So, um, so if you look at physicians today, uh, three out of five are, uh, have symptoms of burnout you know they are they are tired none of stress as a result they're quitting in all countries in the world in developed country and also and and they um, so the shortage of healthcare professionals should be about uh, 18 million by 2030 and the, the reason they quit is they are tired of uh, doing administrative tasks so if you look at your gp probably they are spending more than 50% of time typing on a computer, filling some paperwork, your, your patient records, claims, NHS things, uh, writing referral letters. So they have become like administrative, uh, people. 50 years ago, there were medical secretaries who were doing that with a pretext of digitalization and, and using computer. We put these tasks to, we pushed these tasks to physicians. And so not today, they are spending 50% of time doing this. So our goal at NABLA is, is to fully automate all these 50% of tasks, the administrative part of the job that they hate to do, so that they feel better they, and they provide better care to you. They have more time to, for you, the patient. Uh, so this is what we do uh, with a product called Copilot, which is a copilot for physicians. And how far along the
1: track? Are you now in terms of where are you in the go-to-market journey? Uh, so
0: our product, so cons- more more precisely, our product is a copilot that listens to a consultation. So let's say you are visiting your doctor, they put their phone on the table, and this Nebula uh, AI uh, will listen. It doesn't store, it doesn't recall, but it listens to the consultation. And at the end of the consultation, it will fill all the paperwork, write the clinical documentation write the letters, do all the things that they need to do on the computer. So they don't have to take notes anymore and they don't have to touch the keyboard uh, at the end of the consultation. So it will save them six, seven minutes per consultation. Because this is a product today. Yeah. Uh, And uh, it's used... uh, um, So we we primarily work in the US, on the US market uh, today. It's used by about 14,000 doctors, physicians. Um, and our main, so our main uh, customer in the US is uh, Kaiser Permanente. It's a big health system in California. It's used by 10,000 doctors over there, Uh, but our product is also available for all practices in the individual doctors uh, um, around the world. We support French, English, Spanish. How have you found selling into the NHS? Uh, I haven't found yet. (laughs) Uh, yeah, we, we love to work. <laughs> we love. So we are working in, in, um, uh, with, with several physicians in the UK, uh, in surgeries around London. And we are trying to right now understand what is the best way to work with the NHS. I, I, I don't know yet.
1: Yeah. Uh, no, I just think it's an incredible, um, um, it's incredible because of the no doctors. It's similar to teachers, right? None of them go into it to do paperwork. No one goes into it for the administration side of it. But it does just, just take more and more time. And it's one of these things that as it's become easier, people have made the requirements to do it even more stringent on it. And so it's one of these things where you could, you yeah, know, you can make a real difference. And there are a few policymakers that listen to this show. So, um, yeah. it's um, <laughs> And why... Um, and why... Did you decide on this rather than transport?
0: Uh, it's a, it's a good question. We, so transportation was mostly about autonomous vehicles and we felt that we were already late to the, to the game in 2018. We, we, you know, with Tesla, we, with, uh, Google, Uber by then. And so we thought, okay, it's, it's already a bit late and we'll have, and we thought healthcare. Everybody knows healthcare systems are broken around the world differently in every country but they are in every single country completely broken i mean not even talking about france if you feel feel depressed about any chance just come visit us in france and see the the status here yeah Uh, and and, and also in the us you know so it's very broken it's it's i think it's harder it's easy to have good ideas in healthcare because it's so broken that even you know optimizations or potentials are everywhere, but it's incredibly incredibly hard to push something uh, to the real world to get physicians to change the way they were the, for many many reasons the changing things in healthcare is very difficult uh and we we were actually actually excited by uh excited by the challenge uh, and because mm. Uh, it was our third startup and we had a very good team and very supportive investors were ready to support us even before we get traction on the market. So we thought, we said, okay, we have lots of, um, we have good weapons so we should choose a very ambitious uh, sector and we chose healthcare. Yeah. And
1: what did you, how did you approach hiring a team? Because this is obviously a new sector for you. Um, so obviously Quite different skills, but what did you take from your previous two startups and working at Facebook as well, in terms of how to build that first initial good
0: team? So, 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 so technical teams, the product team was easy to build because I I, I gathered the people, the best people I had worked with in the last twenty years, including at Facebook and my and the early startups. Uh, some of them had followed me through all these startups and then at Facebook and then joined me, so it was like easier. Because I already had the core of the team, uh what was really difficult was to build the medical side of the team mm-hmm. uh because I had no idea where to start and what kind of physician we should partner with, and we made again all the possible mistakes and 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 detour uh before we um uh, eventually found the right people, i think on the medical side, but it's definitely uh one very difficult thing for all startups in health to 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 find the matching the the, the the matching parts in the health side.
1: Yeah, completely. And there was also an interesting thing about the kind of co-founder mix in terms of you talk about this time you wanted you'd seen the kind of role that Sheryl Sandberg had played at Facebook, and you wanted somebody to do that. Talk to us about what her kind of role was at Facebook and and how you wanted to kind of implement that at Nabl.a
0: yeah, I was fascinated by Cheryl's role at Facebook because she basically did very well. Everything Mark didn't want to do. <laughs> to summarize. And so all the things, you know, HR, finance, sales, uh, legal, and uh, legal at Facebook is a big topic, as you can imagine. You know, all these things were totally abstracted away, uh, from, from Mark. You know, just sometimes you had to go to the Congress to, <laughs> yeah, but anyway. Uh, but, but most of most of them, and so because she was doing all that, Mark was spending a lot of time on the product strategy and the tech. And he was, as a result, he was able to be very involved many decisions, uh, even like low level decisions, but from for for the better part, I think, um, yeah, because he was not. Yeah, because Cheryl was doing such a great job on all the operations, you know, as COO, uh, and so. Yeah. Of course, I, I saw that I, I dreamt of having the same, my own chariot, uh, uh to, to, be able to, um, to get rid. But, <laughs> we listened to that. But I told her when I, when we met, okay, I need somebody. <laughs> I don't want to do these things. Can you, can yeah. you like to do them? And she, I'm so excited by doing these things. So, uh, uh so yeah, I met, I actually searched for a co-founder who was the equivalent of Charlie Sandberg for us. And, and I found her. And how did you go about that? Because searching for a co-founder is really hard, right? It's not that hard. If you have time, uh, you, you should start early. Uh, I, I did through, only through network. I asked all my, all the people I respect, you know, from entrepreneurs, MBCs, um, uh, uh, journalists. Okay. I'm looking for this kind of person. I, I had a very clear idea because I had cherry in mind. Uh, who do you know? And so I got introductions. I, and by the way, I met incredible people through this process. And I, I ended up not co-founding the company with, who who uh, were great. Uh, I even met um, somebody who became a minister in France. Afterward, I won't give her name. But um, and uh, we, um, yeah. So so two people actually pointed me to Detchin, who became my co-founder. So I had a, a double double recommendation. Um, but I, I, I approach this like like a very, very important hiring, but not that differently from mm. hiring or meeting people, doing due diligence uh, on each other. And um, I think if you have a few months uh, available and um, because you cannot do that in one week, uh, it, it works.
1: That's really interesting. what um what do you think people are getting wrong about artificial intelligence at the moment? I mean, there's so much focus on it. You've been involved in it for twenty years. It's obviously talked about an incredible amount. I mean, we're almost coming up to the one year anniversary of OpenAI launching chat GPT. What do you see when you survey the landscape at the moment?
0: Um Yeah, p- people never never get AI right. They they are either under, you know, underestimating what it can do, or like like today, overestimating uh uh, what it can do and so i've seen since 25 years we've seen this cycle of oh it doesn't work we forget everything about ai and then we are too excited they are too excited and think it can resolve all things in the world and then come back to so this ai winter ai server cycle has been at least in the fourth fourth cycle uh, now Uh, what is really new with chat gpt is that it became easy for anyone, you know, even my parents, it's a test for me. I uh, use it, I tell it, about it. they know I've been working live for 20 years, it's the first time they can actually do something by themselves, so I think the, the real power of ChatGPT is to bring this to to the public. The LLM behind uh, ChatGPT is not new, and you know, when GPT-3 came out in uh, fall 2020, we talked about it in, in, uh, in our circles, but my parents weren't aware of chat, of GPT three, but like actually the power of chat GPT was already in, mostly in GPT three. And so I think currently there is a little bit of exa- exaggeration about what it can do. And, and of course, on the threats it's posed, because if you want to write uh, something and get a lot of clicks, you have to, to talk about uh, AI, will kill, kill the humanity and why it's dangerous. And so, so there is a lot of exa- exaggeration. And do you think overall
1: it will create jobs or displace more jobs?
0: It will clearly um, move jobs. You know, uh, many people tell about the people who were driving horses and then became cab drivers. I don't know what is the right comparison, but it, yeah, you'll, it will. It will. Many jobs won't be useful anymore, but it will also create. Many jobs or make jobs more, uh, more interesting. Um, so it's actually some manual jobs, job who involved, that involves some, some, some physical, uh, manipulations, I think won't be replaced. They were the first to be replaced during the first industrial revolution. Yeah. And I think these jobs would like, like, you know, you, you could, you could argue that nurses, like, like some physicians will be replaced before nurses are, are replaced. It's much harder today in most cases, I think, to replace a nurse with, with, uh, actually, uh, um, providing physical care on, 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 on patients. And I'm not saying we should or we can replace physicians, but if, if I had to, to bet which one in 50 year will be replaced first, I, I, I wouldn't bet on nurses. So yeah. it's interesting, uh, to see that. There is a wave comparable to the first industrial revolution that it's not the same category of jobs that will be impacted first. Where do you think you'd be looking to start
1: your career? Or if you were doing a startup now and you were sort of in your early 20s, in the early 2020s, where in the AI world would you be focusing?
0: That's a very good question. You really have two worlds, two separate worlds. Uh, in AI, you know, you have the foundation world where you are trying to build the next open AI or the next infrastructure that all companies will use. There's a very basic models like, like, like the GPT-4 and, and so on. Uh, and then you are, the second world is the, the vertical application. You are building up one product for healthcare, like we do, or one product for gaming or, mm. and so it's, it, um, probably if I were starting today, I would start in the foundation layer because I, I, I like the low level stuff. Yeah, uh, um, it's a very high risk, high reward uh, environment right now because if you work on something that is useless, it will uh, you will fail. Um, but it, it's a it's a, a big challenge. You know, there are probably we don't even know how we don't even know why LLMs work so well. So there is no proof that this is the best way to connect your layers and, and to get the results. There may be some, another way that nobody knows about that should provide 10, 10 x better results. So yeah. the fact that we, it's a very, black... it's not like we don't know why it works. It's a big black box. And so for sure, there, there are other better way to, to do these things. And it's for engineers and scientists, I think it's, it should be very, very exciting to know that there is that much potential, yeah. Achieving is better as a
1: young person now to be in a startup or in one of these mega corps working on AI.
0: I think a good a good curriculum. I think is to start in a in a big company where we if the team is really good, you know, you should make your due diligence, wor- learn from this team. Um, and I see that as an extension of your education. And then, you know, do that for for a few years. You will also meet people who are a, a co founder and the best way, to invention, but the best way to to have a co founder is to work with them before. So you know, uh, you get you don't get married with somebody you met the day before. You know, your yeah. students, I think it's a good idea to maybe a good idea to start in a big company and then before you do your startup, but the problem is you, your salary will be so high and they take care of everything. They wash your clothes, you know, the laundry. Yeah, uh, you are like a baby, and then you cannot leave anymore because you are. You, see, you open the cage, but you don't want to leave because you're fed every day. Yeah, uh, I saw that again and again and again. So the risk is to never leave uh, inside. You. Totally, I
1: That's a very good analogy. Um, I want to finally talk just a bit about the cultural differences because you're, you know, you've worked a lot in California, you've built a business in in France, and worked a lot in the UK as well, and so. What are the differences in, and I'm talking particularly about kind of like business startup culture here rather than anything else, but what are the differences between France and the UK
0: first? It's hard for me to position. I see the UK somewhere between the US and France. Yeah. Really? The workplace. And, and uh, I'm still trying to figure out what is it, how to work uh, in, in, in the UK. And I think in business, what I like people from the UK are more direct, I think, than, than yeah. in France. So, unlike communication, is straightforward, whereas in France, we talk more, you know, at length, but uh, after one hour, you still don't know what the person in front of you actually thinks. Yeah. Uh, so, this is something actually where New people are probably more efficient in, in business, more pragmatic, maybe.
1: And does that continue to the States as well? Because that's actually something that we hear about UK businesses, is that it's all a bit too polite to- points and so on. Whereas, again, in the U.S., it's almost another layer of directness.
0: It, it's different. I, I wouldn't say the U.S. is more direct, actually. Uh, you know, we, we, if you go to a grocery store in, 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 in California, they say, hey, and the cashier will ask you, hey, how are you today? And i say, oh, she, it was me. I mean, there is this, this layer of politeness, uh, also. Yeah. In the US, I mean, you can say, anything. oh, great, great. Anything you say in business, first you get positive feedback. And then, so I think maybe the US has lost a little bit on this. Yeah. Straight to the point, uh, it's, it's not obvious. One thing, I big difference between France and the US, and I don't know where the UK is in this scale, you can tell me, but in France, I tell my engineering team, let's do this. And there is always someone say, yeah, are you sure? Maybe we should do that instead. Uh, you know, they will. Question every decision. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes you are tired of having to. And in the US, the teams I had in the US, at least, you can say anything. They, sir, yes, sir, and they will execute. Yeah. Sometimes it's good, but sometimes you you make a mistake and they will execute the mistake without without questioning. Yeah, yeah sure. In the role of the hierarchy, so I I see, I am not saying one is better than the other. You probably want uh, the right balance. But so my first startup, uh, I gave some orders. I, I said something and. I, after three months, I realized one guy was get, getting up every morning at 4 a.m. And, and then when I realized this, I asked him, why are you getting up at 4 a.m.? He said, you told me to send this report at this time, of, of Europe time. And actually, my, my instruction I gave was crazy. I made a mistake in the time. Yeah. But instead of telling me, he was getting up every morning at 4 a.m. without asking any questions. So there is a limit in, uh, in, in, in this model, too.
1: Yeah, but particularly when it sort of makes them less productive, <laughs> like further on in the day as well. Right? <laughs> um, and you, you, you talk about Brexit being a good thing, potentially, when it comes to AI regulation. And I think this is particularly interesting with the AI safety summit coming up. Because AI is moving so fast, it was a really interesting per- perceptive view you had on it. Can you just explain why you think Brexit might be a good thing on that?
0: So, so first I said that to, to, it was the only way to capture the attention of French politicians to, (laughs) to tell them, to tell them, look, the UK is better, will be better than us. And so suddenly they they start to listen to me. And so it was more like a strategic provocation. But, um, no, no, the AI, the the EU AI act as it is today would just kill all AI, all serious AI startups. In, yeah. Europe, in, in, in the EU, it's a crazy, but we don't have time to go into the details, but it will make all LLMs like, uh, unlawful. Like you cannot use a GPT-4, GPT, all these LLMs, so the Lama 2, the open source ones, would be like forbidden if you read the text and apply the text that is currently being almost agreed on in Brussels. And, uh, so I so what I said is, if in the UK you have a smarter uh, decision about how to regulate AI, because I'm, I'm not saying we should not regulate AI, but if you are smarter and you are, you know, talking to engineers, product people, everybody, instead of just the lobby of a few uh, big companies in Europe, then uh, you may actually, it may be interesting for companies like us to train our models in the UK just to avoid anyway our market the biggest market is in the US so we would just we would just drop the eu uh, and so, and the uk could be an interesting place for us to work so that, that's that's um, I still believe in this it's really interesting though
1: and it's um yeah it's uh it shows what have been your lessons engaging with government over the years as a startup founder in a number of different areas is it becoming more important i mean I suppose that in, in healthcare like it's just become a much bigger part of what you have to do right
0: i, I actually I gave up talking to governments I never got anything i, I it's too slow uh, it's too hard for us we don't have time for that I, we don't i don't have the budget or time for um uh, public affair team in yeah. my startup you know so i, I can't maybe it's sad and maybe it's a mistake but i personally I kind of give up I, the only thing I expect from government is to not uh, bother us. Yeah. Um, and th- there is a lot of talk and you, you work with them and then six months later there is a, the minister will change and you have to restart from scratch. It, it's really a nightmare. And the uh, UK we, over we, the last few years. It's, <laughs> it's happened even more. <laughs> and we, we, tried, we tried several go-to-market at Mabla before f- finding our current uh, one which yes. is fast, and what all those who were involved working with the public sector in France, unfortunately, we had to give up because it would have been too slow. Mm. And so we, we eventually uh, chose a product that is uh, um, that we can sell everywhere in the world. Uh, so we are not dependent on the French market to move, on the French critics to move. Uh, b- otherwise, I think we would be dead because it would have been too slow. And as a startup, we need to show traction. Traction. We need to show quick progress so we cannot have the same pace. So it's, it's, a, it's an open problem, and uh, I'm sad about the situation today. Let's finish on a positive. Paris is doing some very
1: interesting general startup moves and has done really over the last 10 years with Station F and so on. How has France become so important in terms of AI and what have been the best things that the French ecosystem has done to improve that environment?
0: So, I think one of the most important things is companies like Facebook start this research center in paris um i can, i can, I could count the number of startups started by fr- by people like us coming from this research center and so you need um to to make i think good startups you need again this kind of education provided uh by by these kind of companies. When it's time to scale the company, the ability also to hire uh, experienced managers from these kind of companies uh, is very important. So 20 years ago, we didn't have these large companies in Paris. And so you could start small things, but it was hard to to scale because we didn't have this place to hire people from. The other, the other thing that was great uh, is again, people like me who uh, left Ten years ago, or twenty years ago, to the US, had startups over there exited and then come back to France. And so then we we start companies in France, but we still have the, our network in the US. We learned a lot. We we made a bit of money. We can invest here, uh, and so I think the second generation of entrepreneurs who come back uh, to the country uh, accelerates a lot uh, the things that I know. At least 20 people in Paris, 20 entrepreneurs in Paris who actually followed this kind of uh, route coming back from the US. Really interesting.